We are living in the age of biologics in medicine. Over the past 15 years, we've experienced an explosion in the number of biologic treatments available and the number of diseases which can be treated. Conditions now treatable with biologic drugs range from inflammatory problems, such as inflammatory arthritis, to inflammatory bowel disease, to inflammatory skin diseases, such as psoriasis, to cancers, to conditions as disparate as migraines to hyperlipidemia. And the biologic drugs are getting increasingly sophisticated, often with excellent efficacy and a better side effect profile than conventional non-biologic medication. Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, medical educator, and research fellow at the Skin Health Institute. Welcome to season number four. I'd like to welcome my new co-host, Dr. Sarah Adamson, our new research fellow at the Skin Health Institute. Thanks, Annalise. It's great to be a part of the team. I'm really looking forward to learning more about all of the interesting topics we'll be covering this year. Today, we're going to explore the use of biologic therapies in skin diseases, in particular, psoriasis and eczema. Throughout this episode, we will explore biologic medications. What are these medications? How do they work? What are potential side effects? What are some of the issues involved in prescribing these drugs? To answer some of these questions, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Karin Lutsch, who is a pharmacist and senior research fellow at the University of South Australia. Karin currently works with the National Value and Prescribing Program, which is funded through a grant by the Department of Health. This program has designed resources and offers personalized discussions of evidence updates to medical specialists, such as dermatologists, rheumatologists, and gastroenterologists. Also joining us today is our returning guest, Associate Professor Peter Foley. Peter is a specialist dermatologist and Australia's only counsellor on the International Psoriasis Council. Peter is Director of Research at the Skin Health Institute and Associate Professor at the University of Melbourne. Karen, Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to participate. To get us started, Karen, perhaps you can tell us what exactly are biologic drugs? Yes, certainly, Sarah. Biologics are typically derived from microorganisms that could be also plant, animal, or human cells, and hence they're named biologic. They can be blood components, recombinant proteins, and vaccines. Those we use actually in autoimmune diseases like psoriasis usually are monoclonal antibodies, targeting or suppressing the action of inflammatory cytokines. That's why they are also called biologic disease-modifying drugs or short BDMIDs. Biologic drugs are now used widely. As mentioned in your introduction, one of the biggest areas is in the treatment of solid organ and hematological malignancies. And then we also have now targeted synthetic DMARDs, so the TSDMARDs, like JAK inhibitors, which are actually not biologics as they're produced by conventional chemical synthesis. For years, doctors have used traditional immunosuppressants such as prednisolone or other systemic agents such as methotrexate, cyclosporin and azathioprine to treat diseases of inflammation. How are biologic agents different from traditional immunosuppressants? Well, firstly, biologic drugs are proteins and that means they are large molecules. So they have to be given by injection and usually stored at fridge temperature. It's interesting 
that these large protein molecules tend to not work when given by mouth as they are digested by our gastrointestinal tracts. Mm, interesting. Yeah, and their design makes them highly specific. They're highly targeted and work by binding to certain cytokines or inflammation-promoting peptides. Hang on. Medical school was a long time ago. Karen, can you clarify what you were referring to by cytokines or inflammation-promoting peptides? Yes. Cytokines is a general term for small secreted proteins, which usually are key modulators of inflammation. And they can include interleukins, interferons, or tumor necrosis factors. Of note, there are different subtypes for each of these. Biologics bind to certain cytokines or inflammation-promoting peptides, such as, for example, TNF-alpha and interleukin-23. That makes them also quite specific in terms of immunosuppression, which can be favorable or unfavorable, depending really on the exact inflammatory pathways you need to target. The biologic target overactive immune pathways and try to downregulate them rather than suppress the immune system on a more systemic level. It's important, though, to remember that not all biologics are suppressants or trying to block pathways. For example, vaccines can be biologics. Biologics can be used to replace proteins such as insulin or hemopoietic growth factors. What dermatologists use in clinical practice tends to be mainly monoclonal antibodies that target proteins or their receptors that are driving inflammation. So we're using the biologics to block the inflammatory pathways. And it sounds as though because these are quite targeted treatments that that's why we're able to have quite a favourable side effect profile, especially compared to other older immunosuppressants. It sounds as though we're ready for our first skin tip. Biologics are made from proteins derived from living organisms. They are highly targeted and work by binding to specific cytokines or inflammation-promoting peptides. These biologic drugs have odd names too, like adalinumab or rizikizumab. Is there any logic behind the names? Yes, there actually is. Their names usually give away whether they are derived from mouse or hamster or human cells. And the international non-proprietary name, sort of the INN nomenclature, provides rules for the naming of biologics. If you, for example, look at ixikizumab, the key stands for targeting interleukins. The zoo means it's a humanized, and MAB is the monoclonal antibody. And for infliximab, the LI refers to working on the immune system, and the XI means that it's a chimeric monoclonal antibody, again, the MAB at the end. INN also applies for Janus kinase inhibitors. They all end in TINIP. That's fascinating. You briefly touched on the different classes of immunosuppressive biologic medications. Can you talk us through these and how do they work? Yes, most biologics used to treat autoimmune diseases are actually monoclonal antibodies. In psoriasis, there are several different classes of biologics we can use, targeting different elements of the immune pathway thought to be most important in driving psoriasis, starting with TNF inhibitors, which were introduced first. And as an aside, infliximab is still one of the most effective across all conditions like chronic plaque psoriasis, IBD, and rheumatoid arthritis. Other biologics are fusion proteins, although for dermatological conditions, these tend to be older agents and few new fusion proteins are currently being developed. Both monoclonal antibodies and fusion proteins target varying stages of inflammatory pathways, 
That's why their efficacy can also vary across various autoimmune conditions. Currently, the most effective ones for chronic plaque psoriasis are interleukin-17 and interleukin-23-P19 inhibitors, whereas TNF inhibitors are very effective in psoriatic arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, and rheumatoid arthritis. Apart from psoriasis, what other biologic drugs are used in dermatology? Other biological agents relevant to dermatology would be the checkpoint inhibitors, which are used for advanced melanoma. Monoclonal antibodies also being explored for the management of advanced squamous cell carcinoma of the skin and Merkel cell carcinoma. The interleukin 4-13 receptor inhibitor dupilumab is currently PBS listed for both atopic dermatitis and asthma. Omalizumab, an anti-IgE monoclonal antibody, is both approved and PBS listed for chronic spontaneous urticaria. And adalimumab, which is one of our old favourites for the management of psoriasis, is approved and PBS listed for the treatment of hydradenitis suppurativa. Meanwhile, there are a lot of ongoing trials for biological agents in conditions such as atopic dermatitis, chronic spontaneous urticaria, and hydradenitis suppurativa. It's amazing hearing how many clinical applications they have. Of note, we discuss adalimumab for HS in our episode, Season 3, Episode 3. I think it's time for another skin tip. Biologic therapies have an increasing and constantly evolving role in the treatment of dermatological diseases. Currently, they can be used in the treatment of chronic plaque psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, chronic urticaria, HS, and melanoma. Now, as a GP, I haven't started any of my patients on a biologic medication. Is prescribing restricted at all? Currently, biologics can only be prescribed by non-GP specialists and only within their specialty. For example, a dermatologist can prescribe infliximab, but only for psoriasis, not for psoriatic arthritis, not for rheumatoid arthritis, not for inflammatory bowel disease, at least on the PBS. I might just add that the reason for the restriction in prescribing of biologics across all indications is a reflection of their price, the cost to the community, rather than concerns about their safety. Mm. We might talk a little bit more about costs later on. Is it a matter of just writing a script or is the prescribing process a little more involved? Due to the high cost of biological therapies, PBS or pharmaceutical benefit scheme access is currently restricted to the very severe end of each disease's spectrum. For psoriasis, patients need to have severe disease. This has been defined as psoriasis area and severity index of at least 15, or significant involvement of the face, palms, and or soles, whilst on therapy for a minimum of six weeks for at least two of five therapies phototherapy or ultraviolet light, methotrexate, cyclosporin, acetretin, and apremolast at doses that are at least at a particular minimum daily or weekly. So you mentioned severe psoriasis. Is there a certain percentage of the body you'd expect to have covered in psoriasis? Is it more than 10% of the body or is it a little bit more complex than that? The definition of severe psoriasis is at least in the minds of dermatologists, far more complicated than just body surface area. For example, if you have 1% body surface area, but it's the middle of your face, that's severe disease. 
If you can't use your hand because 2% of your body surface area is involved, it's severe disease. So dermatologists do play around with the definition um, and it's, it's why we have a composite measure, the psoriasis area and severity index to get to that score. It's not just a matter though of showing an inadequate response to those therapies. Paperwork needs to be completed and then that needs to be submitted to the Pharmaceutical Benefits Highly Specialised Drug Scheme in Hobart or online. Atopic dermatitis is a little bit simpler. We don't need paper-based documentation forwarded to Hobart. We need to document it in the clinical record. And by we, I mean dermatologists. Severe eczema impacting on quality of life despite at least four weeks of topical corticosteroids or topical calcineurin inhibitors. For chronic spontaneous urticaria and hydranitis suppurativa, there's also severity criteria that need to be met and prior therapy requirements. So they're more like psoriasis than atopic dermatitis. Back to cost. I've heard that biologic medications are very expensive. How expensive are they? Well, for those biologics which have biosimilars in Australia, like adalimumab or infliximab, we have actually seen a price reduction. The annual cost at doses used in psoriasis or psoriatic arthritis would be around $11,000 or less a year. Newer biologics like interleukin-17 or 23 inhibitors cost between $21,000 to $23,000 a year during the maintenance phase and more for the first year due to the higher dose frequency during induction. And even JAK inhibitors, which really don't have a terribly complicated chemical structure, will cost roughly $16,000 per year of treatment. Wow. So imagine we have a patient who's in their 20s or 30s when they start on these medications. We could be talking about more than a million dollars for their lifetime of treatment. You are absolutely correct. These medications, even with the price reductions, you're looking at a minimum of $10,000 per year plus the additional costs of seeing doctors. And for 50 years, it quickly adds up. Because sadly, none of these agents are cures. They are controlling the disease. I might just jump in and add that the high cost of the drugs is related to development. It's estimated that you need 10,000 molecules at the very early stage in order to get to one drug to market. There's a lot of cost involved with clinical trials, with preclinical development, whereas production costs for even biological therapies have slumped dramatically. So it's really the cost of development that adds to that price. Karen, you touched on biosimilars. Are they just cheaper generic versions? Biosimilars are not like generic medicines where the active moiety is the same as the originator drug. But because of the complex production process involving living organisms or cell lines, they may have a slightly different structure, maybe a different amino acid here or there with glycosylation. They have to prove similar efficacy, though, and over the years, studies have shown that there are no meaningful differences in terms of efficacy, immunogenicity, and adverse effects between originators and biosimilars, and no adverse outcomes if they are interchanged a few times. But as they all come in different injectable devices, it's not a good idea to confuse patients with switching them around frequently. Peter, you touched on the biologics for psoriasis. Can you tell us more about these? There are now nine different biologics available for the management of chronic plaque psoriasis. They can loosely be grouped 
into three categories, the tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, the interleukin-17 inhibitors, and the anti-IL-23s. Emerging are more targeted treatments, meaning they are more specific. They're more effective, which translates into higher rates of response and more complete response. And because of their targeted nature, they tend to have fewer safety concerns. What impact have these new therapies had for the patients you've been managing? Due to the chronic nature of psoriasis and patients often having lived with their condition for over a decade, it's one of the few areas in dermatology where it's not rare to hear, it's changed my life. My first patient to be given a biologic, which is 20 years ago now, has children around about the same age as mine. And he has talked how having been on biologics now, he's able to take his children swimming in public. He doesn't have to vacuum his bed each day. He doesn't have to change the sheets every other day because of blood stains as a result of the itching and scratching and bleeding of the skin. So he frequently refers to how dramatically different his life is post-biologic compared to pre-biologic. It's great to hear of cases such as this one you've just described where biologics have made such a huge difference in people's lives, especially in the day-to-day activities. Can a psoriasis patient such as the case you described ever go off a biologic medication and still have disease control? Probably not. Psoriasis is genetically determined. We inherit the genes that drive the disease. These genes tend to involve a particular inflammatory pathway that involves interleukin-23, the Th17 cells, and interleukin-17. The biologics target various elements of this pathway, but they don't influence the underlying genetic predisposition. The evidence to date is that essentially everyone with psoriasis will note return of disease at varying speeds upon cessation of biological therapy. One of the hopes for the future is that if we treat patients aggressively enough, early enough, we may in fact be able to induce remission. However, getting patients with severe enough disease to warrant early intervention is making it difficult to demonstrate. It'll be interesting to see how this research goes. Having discussed all the good things about biologics for psoriasis, are there any potential side effects that we should be aware of? I think firstly, we have to acknowledge that our knowledge of adverse effects relies on longer term studies and observations than what emerges through drug registration trials. Even if you have long term follow up studies, these only involve patients who have tolerated a particular drug from the start, and they are usually too small to find rare adverse effects. I think what this really highlights is that clinical trials are controlled, they're relatively short term, and so we don't have that long term data. It really emphasises the importance of registries and the collection of real-world evidence. For TNF inhibitors, which have the most data as they have been used for the longest time, there's a small increase in infection risk that includes opportunistic infections and also reactivation of tuberculosis. Infection risk increase is similar for IL-23 and 17 inhibitors. What types of infection are you referring to? The most frequent adverse events in clinical trials related to upper respiratory tract infections. Then there is an association between interleukin-17 inhibitors and candidiasis. This risk may increase with the addition of other medicines. For example, patients with psoriasis have a higher incidence rate of diabetes. And treating diabetes with SGO2 inhibitors like empadiflozin 
which can cause urogenital candida infections in combination with IL-17 inhibitors, may then not be ideal for some patients. Are there any other side effects we should be aware of? Well, there's nasopharyngitis as an adverse effect of interleukin-17 inhibitors. And although quite rare, neutropenia has been observed in up to 1% of patients receiving them. Given the nature of biologics, there can be hypersensitivity reactions, especially with those chimeric monoclonal antibodies and injection site reactions, and of course other problems related to immunosuppression, for example, around the use of life-attenuated vaccines. An important point to remember here is that when one part of the immune system is targeted, it may lead to less well-regulated other components of the immune system. So we rarely see immune dysregulation issues with the tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, such as drug-associated alopecia areata, multiple sclerosis or lupus-like syndromes, or even Guillain-Barre-like syndromes. Rare, but we need to acknowledge that they can occur. For a psoriasis patient, what are potential contraindications to treatment with a biologic drug? Well, we touched on a few of those before, and one of them would be history of inadequately treated tuberculosis, active infection, protein F inhibitors, also grade three and four heart failure, and demyelinating disease like MS or lupus erythematosus. For interleukin-17 inhibitors, IBD would be a contraindication. And of course, for all of them, you really want to be aware of untreated malignancies. Karen, when you say active infection, do you mean any type of active infection? So like a fungal nail infection or or are you talking more major active infections? Ideally, before you start anyone on an immunosuppressive agent or immunomodulating agents, you want to get as good a control of infection as possible, but it's mainly sort of severer infections. You wouldn't start somebody on a biologic, for example, has pneumonia or COPD, COPD exacerbation at the time of starting it. I agree entirely. We're talking about significant infection, infections, latent infections that may be reactivated. We're not really concerned that someone might have some tinea. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, COVID. What do you advise patients on biologics if they do contract COVID? That probably depends on their vaccination status, but contacting their GP early after a positive COVID test would make sure that the best strategies are thought of early on. And it's important to note these may also include doing nothing and resting for many patients. With regards to COVID vaccinations, we certainly encourage all patients uh, on biologics, as with any patients not on biologics, to be vaccinated. Patients who are being managed with biologics as monotherapy for the various dermatological conditions such as psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, hydranitis suppurativa, chronic spontaneous urticaria, are specifically not listed in the ATAGI guidelines as requiring a third primary dose. Vaccination is encouraged because patients on any immunomodulatory agent may be more prone to any sort of infection. We encourage that the vaccine is given at least a week before or at least a week after a biologic dose. If a patient on a biologic is unfortunate enough to contract covid In the dermatological setting, we'd encourage the patient to contact the treating dermatology team, withhold the biologic until they have recovered symptomatically and ideally are negative on testing. 
If a patient is over 65 or has other risk factors, it's certainly worth them seeking medical attention as they may be a candidate for the new agents for treating early COVID. In some jurisdictions, such as Victoria, you would now be considered a candidate for some of these agents if it's within the first five days and you have mild or no symptoms. Shifting to another potential clinical issue, what if a female patient with psoriasis who is on a biologic medication wants to have a baby? There are quite a number of factors to be considered here. One might recall that 50% of pregnancies in Australia are unplanned. So this is a discussion dermatologists need to have with their females of childbearing age right at the very beginning of commencing any long-term treatment, including the biological therapies. Biologics are not mutagenic, nor are they teratogenic. So we're not concerned about exposure during pregnancy in terms of birth defects. We're not concerned about the biologics inducing birth defects or changing pregnancy outcomes. The biologics have not been shown to alter at all the predicted rates of the various pregnancy outcomes. They're not protective, but nor are they problematic. In the very early parts of pregnancy, the immature placenta means that little or no exposure occurs to the baby-to-be. During the second trimester, there is transport across the placenta, so there is some exposure. In the third trimester, there's actually active transport of antibodies across the placenta. So the newborn baby has higher rates of monoclonal antibodies than what the mother does, and newborns metabolize antibodies more slowly than adults, part of the protective process, because we need newborn babies to have some protection from their mother. Yes, and TNF inhibitors now have been used by enough women to cautiously support their use during pregnancy, always, of course, weighing benefits against potential risks. At this point in time, we don't have much safety data for interleukin-17 and 23 inhibitors in pregnancy, though tertiary hospitals may keep women using these biologics with tight monitoring throughout pregnancy. That's a lot of information we just covered. So to summarise, it sounds as though biologics are okay in pregnancy then. Is that correct? It depends. Unfortunately, the immune system of newborns will be compromised, and that means potentially delaying vaccination with live vaccines if the mother uses a biologic throughout the pregnancy. So ideally, biologics are seized during the second or at least the third trimester. But on balance, you know, if benefits outweigh any risks, then there could be merit in continuing biologics throughout pregnancy with adequate monitoring and delaying vaccination. So it sounds as though the take-home message here is, if one of my patients in general practice becomes pregnant and they're on a biologic, I need to let the non-GP specialist who is managing their condition know as soon as possible. The bottom line is that exposure at the time of conception probably has no impact at all, even though the label will say not for exposure during pregnancy. How about in breastfeeding? Well, although small amounts of biologics can be found in breast milk, as large proteins, they're likely to be at least partially destroyed in the infant's gastrointestinal tract and absorption is probably minimal. So breastfeeding is generally considered to be safe. What about patients on biologic therapies who develop a solid 
organ malignancy such as breast cancer. Can they still have biologic drugs? Based on the limited data we have, biologics used in treating skin diseases do not seem to influence the development or recurrence of solid organ cancers. What becomes problematic is additional immunosuppression when patients undergo active cancer treatment. So the recommendation would be to look at less immunosuppressive treatment options while undergoing treatment for cancer. For example, UVB therapy, which of course isn't appropriate when you're treating skin cancers. In essence, in clinical practice, when a patient develops a solid organ malignancy, a long discussion is required. It's not something that can be skipped over. It's pretty clear that there is a lack of any sort of quality controlled data. And for all of the biologic agents that we have in the development program, pretty much a history of any malignancy other than adequately treated basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma was considered an exclusion criteria for the trials, at least if that malignancy was within the preceding five years. So if the patient had a recent malignancy, they're excluded. So we don't have the controlled data for a patient who develops a solid organ malignancy. What we do know, as Karen's said, is that these agents don't seem to change the outcomes. They're not protective, but they don't seem to worsen outcomes. They don't seem to increase rates of malignancy. As I've mentioned earlier, real-world evidence and registry data is what we need because in the real world, we do put patients with solid organ malignancy onto biologic therapies or they develop solid organ malignancies on the therapies and we continue to treat them. So we're collecting the data or we're trying to collect the data, but it's limited and it's not controlled. I might just finally say that we don't make these decisions in isolation. We have a long discussion with the patient and we follow up with their treating clinicians to make sure everyone is on board. Ever wondered what the Skin Health Institute does? At the Skin Health Institute, based in Melbourne, we aim to improve skin health for all our patients, and the research we conduct shapes clinical treatment and practice. We provide over 30,000 patient treatments each year and also deliver exceptional education programs for dermatologists, registrars and healthcare workers, specialist training for visiting international medical graduates, workshops to upskill GPs and medical students, and public education programs aimed at improving skin health in the community. The Institute also conducts clinical trials and research projects that are published and presented internationally. We make substantial contributions to the worldwide clinical care and management of skin diseases, skin cancer and melanoma, and are recognised globally for our medical research. We have multiple clinics for GPs to directly refer patients to. GPs can complete our online referral form available on our website at skinhealthinstitute.org.au forward slash patient referrals or email referrals to referrals at skinhealthinstitute.org.au. We might shift across to another area now, atopic dermatitis. Over the past two years, we have had two advanced target treatments approved on PBS for the treatment of severe atopic dermatitis, dupilumab, which is a biologic, and more recently, upadacitinib, a JAK inhibitor. Peter, can you talk us through dupilumab? Dupilumab is a monoclonal antibody. It targets a common component or common subunit 
of the receptor for interleukins 4 and 13. Those receptors are heterodimers and they share a common subunit. Blocking these receptors is a means of blocking what's thought to be the key pathway in the pathogenesis of atopic dermatitis. Dupilumab is administered subcutaneously and usually patients are trained on how to self-administer this given every two weeks. I might emphasize that dupilumab is also approved and PBS listed for asthma. Because it's targeted, it tends to have very few adverse effects, but inflammatory eye disease, a non-infective conjunctivitis, can be seen in some patients, particularly if they have pre-existing or underlying atopic eye disease, an element of atopic dermatitis that is often overlooked. Can you take us through a typical patient with atopic dermatitis whom you started on dupilumab? To be eligible for dupilumab on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme, patients need to have severe atopic dermatitis. Unlike the biologics for psoriasis, dupilumab is available from the age of 12. The psoriasis biologics are mostly for adults. The patients tend to have had their atopic dermatitis for many years. Atopic dermatitis, as with most chronic skin conditions, tends to be quite disfiguring. It has stigma associated with it. Atopic dermatitis frequently is infected, so these patients have experienced both bacterial and viral skin infections. They tend to be intensely itchy, and as a consequence of the scratching and the skin infections, sleep disturbance is a common feature. Patients with atopic dermatitis, as well as psoriasis, have higher rates of anxiety and depression. When we start someone on dupilumab, we tend to see within the first couple of weeks a diminution of itch, the avoidance or the need for systemic therapies, and a dramatically reduced requirement for topical agents such as corticosteroids. And what are some of the potential side effects of dupilumab? As Peter already alluded to, the most common adverse effects of dupilumab affect the eye. So it's keratitis, allergic and bacterial conjunctivitis, blepharitis, and other eye symptoms have been observed in studies, as well as an increased rate of oral herpes. But due to the improved skin integrity, you see decreased bacterial skin infections and also disseminated herpes simplex virus infections. What about Upada Sitinib? Can you talk us through this? Well, important side note here, often we throw it in with the biologics, but upadacitinib is actually a small molecule. It's called a targeted synthetic demide. Upadacitinib is a daily oral agent that targets Janus kinase 1. It comes in two doses, 15 and 30 milligrams. It has a very rapid onset of action. So within days, patients are describing decreased itch. There is improved sleep. Quality of life improves dramatically and the cutaneous signs are reduced. What are some of its potential side effects? Similarly to biologics, infection risk will be slightly increased with upadacitinib, as occurs actually with all JAK inhibitors. What is different for JAK inhibitors compared to biologics is an increased risk of herpes zoster reactivation, which for upadacitinib seems to be smaller than for other JAK inhibitors. But you may want to encourage herpes zoster vaccination in older people and full varicella vaccination for younger people before starting. Another class effect is the potential to change lipid profiles, but usually without a change in the LDL to HDL ratio. 
This being said, regular, for example, six monthly monitoring can keep track of any potential changes which may affect the cardiovascular disease risk of a person. And generally with JAK inhibitors, keeping an eye on cardiovascular disease risk and considering also the risk for venous thromboembolism would be prudent. Although the magnitude of risk seems to vary depending on JAK selectivity of a drug. But as mentioned before, studies are not really going to pick up rarer events. Other adverse events relate to the effects on bone marrow. For JAK1 inhibitors like upadacidinib, full blood count monitoring can keep track of those. Another issue that seems to be seen in patients with atopic dermatitis particularly is the development of acne or folliculitis on James kinase inhibitors, including upadacitinib. There's also the potential because of the way Janus kinase inhibitors are metabolized for drug interactions to occur. They are metabolized through the cytochrome P450 system. Fortunately, a lot of our patients are relatively young and they're less likely to be on other therapies. As a GP, if I think my patient might be eligible for a biologic therapy, for example, a patient with moderately severe psoriasis, what information would you want on the referral? As we've already mentioned, patients, to qualify for a biologic with psoriasis, they need to have severe disease, which needs to be either widespread or severe involvement, face, palms or soles. They also need to have shown an inadequate response to at least two of our so-called traditional therapies for a minimum of six weeks. Most of these therapies, though, can only be prescribed by dermatologists. So it's not as though you can refer someone to me because they've failed to respond to acetretin or phototherapy or a premolus. I'm the one that has to prescribe them. What I'd encourage any general practitioner Seeing someone with moderate to severe psoriasis that's not adequately controlled with topical therapies is to let them know there's a broad range of therapies now available and refer them to a dermatologist. Some of the things I want to know about when I'm first seeing a patient is their duration of disease, whether they have psoriatic arthritis, what family history they have of psoriasis, what prior therapies they may have. But mostly, if they're coming to see me, they will have only tried topical therapies. What we as dermatologists particularly want to know from the general practitioner is what are the disease states the patients have? What are the medications they are on? What their past history is? Because that will influence our prescribing. So it's, it's the background information provided in an accurate manner. And then most of the other stuff we're going to have to do including the investigations, which we won't all do exactly the same. So I'll have my particular set of investigations and patients will often say, but I've had a whole lot of blood tests. So I'm happy for them to come in investigation free, just a really accurate history of what else is going on in their life. How about if we refer a patient with severe AD? Accessing PBS listed advanced therapies for atopic dermatitis. So dupilumab and upadacitinib is considerably simpler. They require severe disease that has failed to respond to a minimum of four weeks of topical therapy. So topical corticosteroids, topical calcineurin inhibitors, or topical phosphodiesterase E4 inhibitors. So all that's all that's required. If they fail to respond to those therapies, 
they can see a dermatologist who may decide that the most appropriate way to manage the patient is with dupilumab or upadacitinib, or may decide that the patient is a candidate for cyclosporin or for ultraviolet light. But I think disease that is not adequately controlled with topicals is a, a call for referral. It's time for another skin tip. Early referral to a dermatologist is particularly helpful if you think your patient may benefit from a biologic medication. If we're referring a patient to a dermatologist, are there any vaccinations that you would suggest we have them get done before they come to see you? From a dermatologist's perspective, it's fantastic if patients are up to date with their vaccinations. So as a matter of course, we encourage our patients to have annual influenza vaccines. We certainly encourage them to have COVID vaccination. We encourage patients to speak to their general practitioner about pneumococcal vaccination. Live vaccines cannot be given to patients who are on biological therapies. So patients need to have that done in advance. We'd also encourage patients to be vaccinated to infections such as hepatitis B, HPV and varicella. So one of the key roles for the general practitioner is vaccinating the patient ahead of time, but also working with us to ensure vaccinations once they're on therapy. It brings to mind a case that I had in general practice. And one of my patients had inflammatory bowel disease and had just been started on a biologic therapy. She'd only been on it for one month when she was planning a trip to the Solomon Islands. And in the course of preparing her for her trip, we discovered that she had never been vaccinated for measles, mumps and rubella. And there was an outbreak at the time. So I can say from my own experience, it's definitely something that I try and be on top of with these patients now. I agree wholeheartedly. Another question, Peter. If a patient has started on a biologic, can they still use their previous treatments, such as medicated creams? Yes, certainly. There's no safety concerns with any of the topical therapies in combination with biologic therapies or advanced targeted therapies in the management of any chronic inflammatory skin condition. What we do see, though, is that over time, patients are less and less likely to require any topical therapies because of how efficacious the new agents are. The beauty of monoclonal antibodies is, at least to date, there doesn't appear to be any drug-drug interactions because they're antibodies, we're producing antibodies all the time. However, these drugs work on the immune system. So like with any agent that works on the immune system, we've got to be careful, particularly with infections, and live vaccines are prohibited in patients on these therapies. So. Say my patient has been already commenced on a biologic, are there any monitoring investigations that I need to be doing as a GP? In general, monitoring isn't terribly different from what would be required for immunosuppressive therapies, other than probably being required less frequently. So we do regularly monitor full blood counts, liver function, renal function, Again, we want to emphasize that patients need to be up to date with their vaccinations. But with the newer targeted therapies, targeting interleukin 17 and interleukin 23, and the agents that we use for atopic dermatitis, such as dupilumab, less and less frequent investigations or monitoring investigations are required. Are there any changes to the rest of their preventative health, such as skin checks, cervical screening, and other forms of screening? For most patients with autoimmune diseases would have been exposed to drugs which increase skin cancer risk before even starting a biologic. 
So regular and probably more frequent skin checks make actually sense for them. As far as we know, biologics do not increase the risk of cervical dysplasia and cancer, though cervical screening would be at the normal recommended intervals. Unfortunately, patients who have had psoriasis for years or even decades often do not have their psoriasis in isolation. We know that patients with psoriasis have higher rates of skin cancer, whether it's the chronic inflammation, whether it's our therapies, whether it's the fact that they're seeing dermatologists regularly and picking up the skin cancers is open to discussion. We know that some other cancers are more common in patients with psoriasis. Cardiovascular disease and all its risk factors, hypertension, dyslipidemia, obesity, diabetes, all more common in patients with psoriasis, particularly severe psoriasis that has been of longstanding, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, anxiety and depression, inflammatory bowel disease, psoriatic arthritis, a whole host of comorbid conditions occur in patients with psoriasis. So again, that's where the general practitioner really steps in because I wouldn't want my dermatologist managing my hypertension. The last thing I was going to say is that we really emphasize to our patients that they should be having age-appropriate malignancy screening. This is more of a philosophical question, but where do you think we're heading with biologics in the future? I think the biologic future has already arrived. Um, Biologics are used to treat so many different diseases now, and the technology of creating antibodies to just about any peptide or protein is advancing. Just think about how quickly Sotrovimab, the monoclonal antibody against the COVID virus spike protein, was developed. What is still unknown is what will happen if you combine biologics. For example, for patients treated for psoriasis with biologic, who uses insulin for their diabetes, maybe denosumab for osteoporosis, and on top of that, erinomab for migraine. Indeed, we're now starting to see a number of patients in our clinics who are on more than one biologic therapy for different indications. So we are seeing patients with asthma and psoriasis or migraines and psoriasis. An interesting notion is bifunctional monoclonal antibodies where more than one component of an inflammatory pathway is being targeted, hopefully increasing efficacy. The next frontier probably will be the design of small molecules which fulfill similar functions to biologics but can be given orally. That concludes our episode on biologics and skin. Thank you, Karen and Peter, for your time and sharing your expertise with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to participate. And also, thank you very much for having me. Um, For those whose interest has been piqued, please visit the Valiant Prescribing Program website hosted by NPS Medicine Wise. So it's pretty simple. Just bdmarts, npsmedicinewise.org.au. And you will find resources on targeted medicines in the treatment of psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, and IBD. We'll be including a link to these resources on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. We would also like to thank our producer and supervisor, Associate Professor Alvin Chong at the Skin Health Institute. We'd also like to thank the education team at the Skin Health Institute. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want more information on this subject, a transcript of this episode and links to all the resources we've discussed today can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.com. 
spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. The Skin Health Institute would like to thank our exclusive Institute partner, Melbourne Pathology, for their support of the Spot Diagnosis podcast. Thank you.